Okay, well, as Aaron noted, uh, today is Pentecost Sunday, which is, of course, Penta 50, 50 days since Passover, the Feast of Weeks, when traditionally uh, Jews believe the, the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai uh, at the Feast of Weeks. Um, and, of course, we know from Acts that the Spirit was given to the church on the day of Pentecost with fire and wind and lots of cool stuff, right? So uh, that's what we're celebrating today. And, and incidentally, uh, I'll be, or coincidentally rather, really is, because uh, I forgot it was Pentecost Sunday until last week, um, I'll be talking about the relationship between the, the law and the Spirit. And so uh, they all work together. It's going to be good, I think. Um, if you recall... I started what appears to now be a four-week series, because I'm going to finish it up today, on uh, God nudging me with two verses. Uh, John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And uh, Romans 8, 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. God is nudging us to hear His voice and be led by His Spirit. And so uh, this is the fourth and last part of that series. If you want to pull out your notes have a slightly cryptic title there, Team Spirit. Um, sounds like a weird movie, but uh, you'll understand it better when we get to the end. There's an emphasis that God wants to bring that I think is kind of cool. So, um, we already looked at the My Sheep Hear My Voice passage. We're going to finish up by looking at the Romans 8 passage. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. All right? that you guys? Sons means daughters, too. Good. All right, so let's start by reading that passage. I'm going to read uh, Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. It says, But as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, or daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. So are receiving the Spirit of God has something to do with us entering into the family of God, with us being included in this eternal family, the Godhead, that's been around forever. Now he's included us, and uh, we've received the very spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, which highlights our relationship. It's not just, you're a master, I'm a servant relationship. He's daddy, right? The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Our primary identity since receiving the Spirit is as children of God. And if children, then heirs. What do heirs get? Inheritance. Most of the time, they get everything that dad had, right? Think about that. We're going to talk about that more as we go on. If, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. There's a partnership in this inheritance. Everything Jesus gets, apparently, we get to share in. Uh, if, indeed, we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. Amen? So that's our calling. We want to make sure we understand this because we want to be a people that are led by the Spirit. Right? You, if, if not, honestly... Uh, we're probably in the wrong church. You should want to be a person led by the Spirit, or I'm going to be annoying to you. Now, seriously annoying. So, Romans 8 has connected this with being a child of God. Children of God are led by the Spirit of God. Which begs the question, how does God train or raise up His children? And we can see in... Uh, the Old Testament, and in his dealings with Israel, that he does it pretty much the same way we all raise our children. And it's spelled out in Galatians chapter 3. So I want to read that for you, and it's really important that we get this. Uh, in Galatians 3, in the whole book of Galatians, Paul is writing to the Jews primarily, uh, trying to educate them on what's different now uh, and not to go back to the law, that things have changed in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. And so he's helping them understand this. And he says, before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. 
The law was to keep us in regard, to make sure nothing bad happened. How many of you have told your children when they were very young things to do, and the only explanation you gave them is because I said so? Right. Because you didn't have time to explain the physics involved or, you know, in playing in the road or stopping distances because they're three. They don't get it. You just said, no, quit playing in the street with the cat, whatever, right? So the cat usually has enough sense not to, but kids not always. So you kept them, you guarded them with a rule that they didn't even understand. All they know is mom and dad said, don't do this because they said so. So we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith that would be afterward revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. The Hebrew there means the one who takes by the hand. It's speaking of how you would train a small child. The law was what small children got. Uh, just because you know they were grown up doesn't mean they weren't humanly small children in the spirit at that point. So the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, even if you have a child who's going to inherit everything you have, they don't inherit that when they're three. At the most, uh, if something happens to you, you put it in a trust. So someone who's a little wiser than them can manage it until they're older than three, right? Amen. So they're kept by rules under guard until they can handle the freedom of the inheritance you want to give them. You understand that? So it's the exact same thing that God did. We became sons in reality when we received his spirit. The only difference is that uh, before, we're just following rules and not really knowing why. And as sons, he's trusting us with a, a new level of freedom because he's put his law in our hearts instead of in a book. And we're supposed to learn him. Now, we'll understand that more as we go on. But here's what I want you to get in general. That when God raises his children, he does it the same way you do. It's first rules then freedom. In fact, everybody does this. I played sports growing up. It's hard to tell now because I'm slow and nap a lot, but uh, <laughs> I used to be faster. Um, and everything started out as what we called fundamentals. You learned the rules. And what you found was the more you mastered the fundamentals, the more freedom you had to diverge from those and perform, right? Uh, the guys that didn't master the fundamentals rarely got the freedom that the other guys got. Any of you who played sports understand that. So this is just life. First rules, then freedom. We start out being controlled until we learn self-control. Uh, some of you are hitting that stage. How many of you, uh, with great fear and trepidation, hand your car keys to your 16-year-old? Right? <laughs> How many of you did that when they were eight? <laughs> no. Right? How many of you, when your kids were four, let them eat whatever they wanted, even if they wanted to survive on Pop-Tarts and cereal? No? No, you exercise control. When they got older, you let them eat what they want, mostly, until you get real old, then people start telling you how to eat again. Because they could exercise self-control. They could understand why they couldn't just eat Pop-Tarts and Fruit Loops, right? So, uh, theoretically. So, we start with rules, and we end with freedom. We start being controlled, and we have self-control. I will point out, remember, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. That has to be developed. The gifts are awesome. The gifts of the Spirit just get given. The fruit of the Spirit we have to work at, don't we? It's the character of God being built in us. And so we have to develop self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is necessary for us to be given freedom, right? Now, we don't always like this. I mean, when I say, how many of you want to be free? Everybody goes, yeah. 
But when you think about it, a lot of people don't really. Uh, a lot of people don't want to be free. Human nature sometimes, we don't want that kind of freedom. We kind of like the rules. The rules are safe. Uh, we see this a lot in programs. We would see this when we would send youth out to um, a missions thing for the summer, or they'd go out to IHOP, and they'd come back, and they're all fired up because they're praying hours a day, and they're witnessing, they're doing all this stuff. But they were doing it in a very controlled environment. People were coming in, getting them out of bed, and making them do it. And what we would notice again and again and again is that most of them had not yet developed the self-control to translate that to a free environment. And so the result was they'd come back all fired up and three weeks later, they aren't showing up for anything. Right? So the trick is, how do I translate a controlled environment to something that's in me that I can do with freedom? Right? You see this in... Uh, recovery programs. People will do very, very well in recovery programs, and, uh, and they'll come out very confident. And this is the dangerous part. Can you handle freedom? And often that's when they find out, oh, I can't. I was doing well because other people were keeping a controlled environment around me. I can't control my own environment. And they have to learn a whole new step. How do I handle freedom? You understand? So, we have to learn how to handle freedom. And again, you'd think everybody would sign up for that, but we don't always because responsibility is scary and you can't separate them. If you're free to make your own choices, you're responsible for the choices you make, aren't you? And human nature uh, doesn't always like this. I'll give you a great example. I used to teach high school math and science. I would spend most of my time trying to convince my students that if you learn the formula, if you understand the concept behind, you know, F equals MA or whatever's going on, you can use this in all kinds of creative ways and apply it, right? All you have to do is understand. I'm trying to help you understand why this is happening, why this math formula works, why these things are happening. You know what they wanted? Did I, do the pro, pro, blah, blah. Did I do the problem right? Did I get the right answer? Just tell me the steps. What are the steps for this problem? I just want to pass the class. I don't really care about understanding. I just want to know how to do this problem. I want the steps and the rules. I really don't want the freedom of understanding math and science, right? And I get that, but we do that as humans. We do that spiritually sometimes as well. We don't really want the freedom of understanding. We just want to be told what are the steps, what to do, right? There is a certain security in rules and one of the things that we do, I'm not picking on anybody, so if this is you, uh, just pretend uh, I'm not talking to you. Um, but uh, sometimes we use the sovereignty excuse. It's a strong doctrine. God is sovereign. Whatever happens, God is sovereign. It's a, it's, it's a, it's, people really like to argue this sovereignty thing. But it can become a cop-out. It can become an excuse so that anything that happens is God's fault, not my fault, right? And so uh, we, we fall into this trap. Here's the problem with this hyper-sovereignty thing, that whatever happens is God, God's sovereign. If, if it happened, it must be God's will. If I'm sick, it must be God's will. If I'm well, it must be God's will, whatever. The problem is, as we learned in Romans 8, he made us joint heirs with Christ. You know what that means? That means we are participating in his sovereignty. He made you a participant. So now what you do matters. It's not all just him. We learned in the last time I spoke that he has made us kings and priests to our God. He made you a king. He brought you into his government. You know what that means? It would be the equivalent of Congress saying, well, the president's sovereign, 
We don't have any responsibility. It's not our fault. Well, God is sovereign, but in his sovereignty, he made you kings and priests. He brought you into the equation. So you can't use sovereignty as an excuse because now your decisions matter. What you do matters. And so all of this to say, it's really easy to, to cop out and go, we, we, we got the book, we're just going to follow the rules. And God's going, no, my children are loving my spirit. I want you to move from rules to freedom. And there's ways to do that. Are you with me? Okay. Now, here's the hard part. Being led by the Spirit, I always use this analogy because it's great and it's kind of biblical. Being led by the Spirit is a lot more like sailing than uh, like following instructions or a map. I love when I, nowadays, because I have an iPhone, when I don't know where I'm going, if I have an address, I can put it in my iPhone and the chick in my phone will tell me every single turn, <laughs> right? But Rachel got in her phone, and it's an it's a Australian dude. <laughs> so he's actually more fun to get directions from because the Australian accent. It'll tell me every single turn. I almost can't screw that up, right? I like that. I like a map that tells me where to go. I like steps. I can actually cook if... If the steps are carefully delineated, and they're not using words like season to taste, because I don't know what that means. If it's, like, if it's like a chem lab, I can do that, right? If I have steps. But the problem is, we get to thinking maybe God's like that. He's just saying, go here. He's just giving me steps. And, and he does. He does give us next steps and things to do. But it's really not like that. It's more like sailing. Here we go. Now, by the way, I don't sail. Uh, I should probably learn if I'm going to keep saying this, but uh, who has time? Anyway, uh, but, you know, I can observe that sailing appears to be very different than driving my car. I'm in complete control of my car. And the weather conditions have very little to do with what happens with my car. Whereas in sailing, I think the weather is the whole big deal. Right? Uh, the wind is probably more important than the boat at this point. Uh, if you don't have wind, you don't sail. And so you got to get your sail up, but you got to catch the wind. And then just when you think you got your thing nailed and you're heading where you want to go, if the wind changes, you got to adapt to it. Right? So it sounds harder, doesn't it? It sounds like there's a relationship going on. Let's look at John chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Now what's happening here, Nicodemus is a, a Jewish leader at the time of Jesus who wants to come and talk to Jesus at night because he's beginning to suspect that Jesus might be who he says he is, but uh, he doesn't want to really go on record. So he's coming at night, and Jesus like he does, immediately pokes him with some truth that he doesn't understand. Yet to be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't get this. He doesn't understand. And so listen to what Jesus says. He says, do you marvel that I said to you, you must be born again? The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So it's very clear what he's talking about when he says born again is being born of the Spirit, is receiving the Spirit of God. Something's going to change when we're born again. We're going to become children of God, designed, since now we have the Spirit of God in us, to be led by the Spirit, not just by the book. We still have to stay within the, the book, the parameters of the book. But now we can be led by the Spirit. And listen to the description he gives. He says, it's like the wind that blows where it wants. He goes, people, so what he's saying is, when you're born again, when you have the Spirit of God, you're going to be like this. People are going to go, he just showed up, and I don't know where he's going, but stuff happened. That's what it's like. That does not sound like Siri or, you know, who's in my phone? I forget. Yeah. Um, the chick in my phone. Yeah. Does not sound like that. I'm not getting step-by-step -step directions. There's this wind thing. Think of it this way. We are literally 
entering into partnership with the wind of God. We are not partnering with a doctrine. We are partnering with a person who's like wind. Who we, he shows up. We can't tell what he's come, where he's come from, where he's going. We just try and get our sail up and catch it and go with. Right? And cool things happen. And so we have to get that. Being led by the Spirit is literally partnering with the wind of God. So it's going to take some skills that are beyond just intellectual, that we don't uh, naturally possess. We're going to have to learn how to interact. How, obviously, intimacy is implied. We're going to have to be close to God and learn how to flow with the wind of God, with His Spirit. Amen? Amen? All right. So if that sounds fun, we'll keep going. Now, what's the purpose of this freedom? God has made us free. Jesus died on the cross to make us free, to set us free from sin, from death, from hell, from all the world, all that stuff. Why? Well, in a word, partnership. He made us free so that we could be his children, so that we could partner with him, so that we could enter into the family business that Jesus is in. All right? And we see this in 2 Corinthians 3. And a familiar passage, you guys know it. Uh, Paul says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom or liberty. So wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. It's, it's a mark of the Spirit of God. Amen? We have to learn how to handle freedom because the Spirit doesn't just do rules. He does freedom, and we have to learn His heart. Okay? So where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. All right, great, Paul. What do we do with that? Well, thankfully, he tells us in the next verse. But we all, with unveiled face, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. By the Spirit of the Lord. So what Paul's saying is, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's now suddenly this freedom. What you're going to do with this freedom is you're going to look at Jesus and be, and then the Spirit of God is going to make you become what you're beholding. You're going to be changed. You're going to be transformed. That's what you do with freedom. You partner with Jesus. You become like him. You learn him, right? We talked in uh, not too long ago, and it says we're changed from glory to glory. How our definition of glory is Exodus 34, 6. Moses said, God, show me your glory. And God said, Moses, I'll show you my glory. And he walked by, and he proclaimed his glory. You remember what he said? Goodness mercy, loving kindness, compassion, graciousness. So we look at Jesus and we are transformed as we behold his goodness. We're transformed, become good. As we behold his mercy, we're transformed, become merciful, right? And so we're learning Jesus. We're learning his heart so that we can properly use our freedom. Here's uh, I want to tie this into our last teaching. Remember our last teaching when I was talking about speaking for God? And I reminded us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are not just messengers, we are ambassadors. And uh, if you missed the teaching, go back and listen to it. But an ambassador encompasses way more than a messenger. We get to represent God's heart, not just here's what he said. Right? And so what he's doing as we're, as the Spirit of God comes and creates an atmosphere of freedom, and we behold Jesus, and we're transformed from glory to glory, he's making us, he's transforming us into ambassadors who can not just express what Jesus said, but express his heart. Because if we're going to handle freedom, we have to be trained as ambassadors. Ambassadors have tremendous freedom. He's going to send us to another country to represent him. Whatever country on earth that is, might be America. Right? But we're ambassadors for the kingdom of heaven. See, here's the thing. He made us joint heirs, right? Whatever Jesus has, we have. Second Peter uh, 1 tells us we've been given his access to his divine power and his divine nature. Do you realize the resources 
He wants to make available to you as a co-heir. It's incredible. We have all the resources that God has at command. And so, uh, it's really important that we're transformed into effective ambassadors because he wants to release to us resources. And we have to use them well to represent him. We learned that ambassadors have authority. We talked last time about how God wants to not just make what he says happen, he wants to give us so much authority that what we say happens in his name. Amen. Right? Now, if he's going to trust us with that kind of authority, we have to be trained as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We have to be children who have learned to be led by his spirit. We have to use the freedom that the Spirit has given us, free of the law. It encompasses the law anyway, right? It fulfills the law just by being led by the Spirit. The Spirit will always fulfill the law. But we have to use that freedom to enter into partnership with Jesus, to really uh, become ambassadors because we have tremendous resources and tremendous authority at our disposal, or at least he wants to give us that. Does that make sense? So this is what the children of God in the business of God, in the family of God, are supposed to be pursuing. It's pretty simple, right? God just brought us into the family business. Now, there are two ways God wants us to use our freedom. Two places in the Bible where God tells us exactly what he wants to do. Um, He has given us freedom so we can partner with him because he wants us to use our freedom in these two ways. Here we go. The first one is simply to be available to him. That is, at the core, what holiness means. Holiness does not mean uh, that you don't sin, although uh, that would be good. Uh, Holiness means we're available to him. You cannot sin and not be available to God. You cannot sin but do your own thing, right? It doesn't just mean we're good. It means we're available to God. Uh, I love in 2 Timothy how... Paul talks about soldiers and how um, they don't uh, entangle themselves with the affairs of this life so that they can please him who enlisted them as soldiers, so they can please their captain. So it's about, uh, it's not about being good so that we earn favor from God. It's about being free of the world so that we're available to God. And it, I think you'll see that. I give you three verses on each of these just quickly. In 1 Corinthians 6, in all these Uh, Paul's talking about our freedom. And he says, uh, all things are lawful for me, uh, but all things are not helpful. In other words, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. In other words, perfectly lawful for me. There's all kinds of things that aren't even sin that I can do, but I'm not going to let that become a thing that controls me because I want to be available for God to control me. That's all he's saying. 1 Peter 2, 16. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. So Peter's saying, I'm free, and I could use my freedom to cloak all kinds of shady stuff. But I don't want to do that. I want to use my freedom to be a bondservant for Jesus. I want to use my freedom to be available for him. In Galatians 5.1, stand fast, therefore, in the freedom or the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Stay in that place. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Why? Because God's going to be mad at you? No. Because if you're bound in something else, you're not free to be available to God. It's that simple. And so the primary thing he wants us to do with our freedom is be available to him. Be available to be led by the Spirit. Right? The second thing is the purpose, really, of all those resources and authority, is service to others. God didn't give you giftings for you. He gave you giftings for the person next to you, right? You are a gift to the body of Christ. The gifts God gave you are gifts to the body of Christ. So, service to others is what we're supposed to do with our freedom. And again, I'll give you three quick verses where it's very clear. Philippians 2 as uh, the one where he starts out, but uh, says, "Let uh, that we're to esteem others higher than ourselves." 
Uh, it says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you. While you're being transformed, uh, let your mind be transformed so that you begin to think like Jesus. Well, how did Jesus think? Which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, what that means is he, he was God. He could play his God card anytime he wanted. You might have genuine authority, genuine, you might have a card you can play. But God says, I'm not going to lean into my God card. Uh, he made himself of no reputation. I'm not going to worry about my reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming to like this man. God said, I'm not going to lean into being God right now. I'm going to lean into being a servant. And so that's what he calls us to, right? And so we use the resources and authorities given us to serve others. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, uses the exact same language he used in 1 Corinthians 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify or build up. There's all kinds of stuff I could do for me, but I didn't do anything for you. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Paul's saying, I'm free, it's all lawful for me, but I'm going to choose to use my freedom to build up others, to serve others as well. Now, this isn't exclusive. It doesn't mean you can't ever do anything for yourself. Uh, but obviously, this needs to be a major factor in our being led by the Spirit. How am I going to be an encouragement? How am I going to edify others? Amen. And then Galatians 5.13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. You've been called to freedom. Isn't that awesome? Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh but through love, serve one another. Don't use it just to get what you can get out of it. Through love, serve one another. It's pretty simple, right? Amen. All right, so we get the idea of what it means to be led by the Spirit, but I really want to jump on this last part because this is the part that God was emphasizing. It's why I have the weird title, uh, Team Spirit. Uh, the part, as I was preparing this, I just kept feeling God just his huge underline highlight exclamation point on the team thing. He really wants us to get the team thing. Uh, America, uh, you know, we're founded on rugged individualism, and uh, sometimes we, we forget this. And so, um, God, I want you to understand, God really wants to emphasize team hearing, hearing God as a team, not just you hearing God, not just you being led by His Spirit, but a team working together to hear God, to be led by His Spirit. Let me give you an example. I talked in the past about youth retreats. I started this out talking about the things we do at the prayer retreats. I even gave you the prayer retreat homework, you remember? Um, so we had just in the 90s and the early 2000s, we had some dynamic stuff going on in youth ministry. Those of you who are around, you remember, we had moves of God. We had cool stuff happening. We had Great worship and the presence of God and prophetic stuff and people getting healed. and uh, Just, you know, it was lots of fun, right? Now, uh, through all that time uh, where I'm leading the youth group, it would be really easy for you to conclude, boy, Tony really knew what he was doing. And that would be wrong. Uh, God really knew what he was doing. Here's what happened behind the scenes. Now, my job was to lead, and so it probably looked at times like I knew what we were doing, where we were going. But uh, I know that consistently, in fact, without exception, every single time, I'm praying, we're going on youth retreats, cool stuff is happening, I'm praying for the youth retreats, going, God, what do you want to do? He would always give me some idea of what he wants to do, what I'm supposed to teach into. I would always try and figure out when and how he was going to do it. It was a little game we played. I never won once. Not once in 20 years. I, I kind of quit playing at some point. I just went, I'm not even going to ask. Just you do what you want. Now, here's what I would experience. Every single time, without exception, he would do something cool. He would tell us what to do to enter into it. But no one, and I had some very prophetic uh, assistant youth leaders that really heard God well. None of us got the whole picture, not once. Always, I had to assimilate what 
uh, Ted got, and Stuart got, and Rachel got, and Shelly got, and Tony got. And I had to put it together every single time. It was almost as if God was trying to make a point over 20 years that he wanted us to do team ministry. And we would have incredible things happen. It was a blast. But none of us, even and, and of those people, several of those were way more prophetic than I was. Uh, none of us got the whole picture. Not once. Every single time. You understand? What God's trying to get at. We need to get this. And isn't it just way easier to hear God as a team? Don't you feel way more comfortable having a little bit of backup? Yeah. Right? So I think God designed it that way. In fact, I think I see it in the Bible. Uh, in Mark 6, he sent the 12 out two by two. In Luke 10, he sent out the 70 two by two. No one went alone. When they did missions, Paul and Barnabas always took somebody with them. Well, first it was Paul and Barnabas, and then they got in an argument. And they got two different guys. But they always took somebody with them. No one did ministry alone. Let's look at, we talked uh, last time when we were talking about speaking for God, we spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 14, because it talks about speaking for God. We'll want to look at a verse we didn't look at. Um, in verse 29, it's talking about order in the church, and it says, let two or three prophets speak. Well, isn't, isn't one enough? Can't we just have the guy prophesying to him? He says, well, no, we might want two or three perspectives. And let the others judge. Now, I don't think that it's, you know, like the Roman Colosseum where the prophets are out there going, you know, or holding, you know, 7.1. It's pretty good, but he didn't really stick the landing, you know. I don't think it's that kind of judge. I think it's what was going on in youth ministry. I think he's going... You got a part, you got a part, you got a part. Does some of the guys out there have a part? Let the prophetic team figure out what God's doing. You understand? Yes. And uh, at the risk of, you know, sounding something, we might have overbalanced on the prophet yeah. instead of the team. Amen. Now, I'm all for. I, I love prophetic guys, and we have them come here sometimes, and we turn them loose, and they prophesy. It's lots of fun. But God uh, created five-fold ministry, I believe, to balance one another. Because uh, they all have strengths, and they all have weaknesses, right? Amen. And so, he wants us to be a team. Uh, let two or three prophets speak, and the others judge. That sounds like a team to me. I think that they were not... I think the judgment was they were assimilating like I was doing at the youth retreats and figuring out what God's doing in the room. Now, contrast that with Proverbs 18. I put that in your notes. Verses 1 and 2. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire and he rages against all wise judgment. Look, I am angry that you keep trying to give me wise input. I am trying to do what I want. Leave me alone. That's what he's describing. He isolates himself. He's interested in his own desire. And he's raging against all wise judgment. Now, we would ne never let anybody like that be in charge of a church, right? Just saying. Verse 2. A fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. Now, you may have something else to say on that, but I'm not interested. I would like to express my heart. Don't confuse me with your other input that's going to help me understand. How's that work? You see what they're saying here. There's a contrast. Uh, it's just not wise to go it alone. It's just not wise to lean on our own understanding. There's, uh, there's a choice here in that second verse. Am I going to want understanding or am I going to want to express my own heart? We live in a culture right now that is really big on expressing your heart, right? And maybe not as big on getting team input and seeking after understanding. But the church should do better. And so I really want you to see that God is, is wanting us to really value uh, working as a team, Amen. in hearing him 
and being led by his spirit. In fact, I will make this prediction. I will make a solid prediction. I believe that as, as we get closer to the end times, as the church matures, that you will see more and more expressions of team ministry than individual ministry. Instead of flyers about the guy or these three or four real famous speakers, uh, I think you'll start seeing flyers about the, you know, the, the, the apostolic team from Kansas City or the apostolic team from San Diego will be at this conference or the worship team from blah, blah, blah. You're going to see team. You're not going to see guy. Now, again, I don't care. Guys are good and we want to honor guys and I don't care that a guy's name's on there. That's fine. It's more the heart of the thing, isn't it? So I believe more and more uh, we're going to see that there's so much more power in team than in the anointed guy. Amen? Amen. So that's my prediction. And I'm pretty confident because I think that's what Ephesians 4 is talking about. Um, I read Ephesians 4 a lot because I think it's the best picture of what the church is supposed to be designed to do. So let's look at it again, and let's make sure you understand uh, some of the things I'm pointing out here. In Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16, it talks about speaking the truth in love that we may grow up. Grow up is another word for mature, right? How many of you want to be in a grown-up, mature church? All right, we should probably get on that then. Okay. So, speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things, into Him. We don't just grow up on our own. We grow up into Him. Very important distinction. Got it? So our growing up is in Jesus. We can't grow up on our own. So we grow up in Him who is the head, Christ. Now, this is important. It's easy to forget. Christ is Greek for Messiah, which is Hebrew for anointed one, which is what Christ means in the Greek. Did y'all got that? So, uh, anointed one. How many anointed ones are there? This is a trick question. Yeah. Well, technically, he's called the anointed one because there's one anointed one. You have anointing. Only through your connection to the head. He is the anointed one. You have an anointing by the Spirit of God. Take away the connection, what happens to the anointing? Right? So it's a small distinction, but it's an important one. He's the anointed one. We, he is the head, we are the body. Right? And the church will do just as well without connection to the anointed one as your body would do without a connection to your head. Right? <clears throat> so, grow up into him who is the head, Christ, the anointed one, from whom the whole body, so it has to flow from the head, right? That's where the anointing is. From whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So now here's what I want you to get. This is, this is going to blow your minds. Your connection to the anointed one, Jesus, through the Spirit, is how you get anointing. But it includes your connection to the body. That's also how you get anointing. It's almost like God designed it so his kids would have to get along. Right? You don't just get anointing from the head. Now, do we pursue intimacy with Jesus? Is that the source of the anointing? Yes. But there's all kinds of other things that aren't open to us without connection to the body. Joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Right? And so something happens when you take your anointing and your anointing and your anointing and my anointing 
and they begin to interact. And there's some kind of increase. And uh, for us, on the youth trips, uh, it ended up being really, really, really cool ministry when, all, when we would all cooperate and uh, just do our part. And it got really fun. And so, again, I want to encourage you, uh, there's tremendous uh, anointing and, and move of God type stuff in just coming to him as a team and going, we want to do this together, God. What's my part? I would uh, submit to you that one of the marks of maturity, and there are more, uh, self-control, I talked earlier is one, but one of the marks of maturity is moving from comparison to confidence. Um, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, verse 12, uh, says basically, if you compare yourselves among yourselves, you're stupid. That's a shortened translation. That's what he's saying. If you compare yourself, he says you're not wise. It's the same thing. Uh, so he says, we're not comparing ourselves with others. I love Philemon 6. says that we become effective. There's only one chapter in Philemon, so it's verse 6. It says, we become effective in ministry as we acknowledge every good thing that is in us in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, don't compare with others. Isn't that our tendency? Like, oh, I, can't do, I can't do what that guy does, or I can't do what that person does. Or I'll, just, I'll just sit here in the congregation. And uh, Paul says, no, no, no. You become effective as you acknowledge the good things that Jesus has put in you the giftings and the callings that Jesus has put in you. It sounds a lot like Ephesians 4. Every part doing its share, right? So I don't have to worry about what you're doing or what you're good at. I got stuff I'm good at. I just do what I'm good at. And I'll let you do what you're good at, right? And that's how team works. So we move from comparison to confidence. We should each have tremendous confidence in just the things that God's given us to do. Even if it's something little, just do it confidently. It doesn't matter. It's, it's part of the body. And it'll all flow together to come into uh, the presence and the anointing of God. Now, one of the best examples of this where you can do team ministry is in marriage. Uh, oddly enough... Um, it's not in the Bible, you know, the whole thing about opposites attract, but it's like the one thing I would add to the Bible if I could add something, because it, I just see it all the time. Have you seen that? Where God will put people together that complement each other. He puts prophetic people with mercy people. And so, uh, you know, the prophetic person can prophesy, and the mercy person can come back and, and comfort the person that's, you know, on their floors weeping. Uh, right? Uh, you see that kind of stuff. He does it all the time. How many of you, well, don't worry your hands, because I, I started an argument here, and I don't have time for counseling. So, <laughs> but I know some of you have that in your own marriage. We have this complementary thing going on. But if we're not careful, it can be divisive, or it can be something where you do what you do, and I do what I do, and we never do it together, when it's meant to be together. Here's the most common example I see of that, and I see this a lot. So if you're, if you're here, and you think I'm talking about you, I might be, but I might not just be only you. So, you know. Uh, but I see this a lot, so I, I don't have any one in particular in mind. Um, but uh, in couples, I will see real often there's someone who's maybe a little more intuitive, who, who maybe hears God a little better, and someone who's a little more practical. And, they, and what often ends up happening is, well, they go, well, I just let that person handle the spiritual stuff. I just do the books and organize the garage. You know, uh, I'm the practical one. And... Uh, now, the danger of the person that's a little more, quote-unquote, spiritual is, you know, you can get out there sometimes in this sort of ethereal kind of, ooh, right? Let's be real. Sometimes you need that practical person to go, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> I got a verse here. Right? But I see this, and I'm going, guys, you got to quit. And, and what happens is the worst part is the practical person ends up thinking they're not spiritual. And so I go, guys, that practical thing is, is a spiritual gift. And you need to operate together and balance each other. 
And couples like that make awesome counselors because usually the intuitive one can get to the root of the problem and then often doesn't know what to do at that point. And the practical one goes, well, I didn't know that was a problem, but now that you've identified it, I can tell you what to do. Right? Anybody seen this? And so we got to move from comparison or from, you know, you do that, I do this, to cooperation, to, uh, to acknowledging our own gifts and to being confident in them. And so we need to know who we are. I've talked about that a lot. Only God can tell you who you are. He's the one that made you and made you uniquely. But we also need to know what we bring to the team. Here's what I am, and here's what I bring to the team. So I know when to contribute. And here's what I'm not good at. So I know when to, I, I pay attention to a lot of you guys and stuff because there's lots of stuff I'm not good at. And so I go find someone who's good at it to lean on, right? Make sense? And so this team thing is a big deal. So for your homework, you've seen your notes, uh, I just want you to try it. Team up and listen for God. Um, you can, home groups is a great place to do that. You just go to your house church, you put someone in the middle of the room, and everyone else is on the team. And you go, uh, see if God's saying anything this person. And you get to test, am I hearing what anyone else is hearing? Or am I hearing something a little different? Or do these things fit together? Or you try at home, or you, or you do some other kind of ministry. I don't want to do that, I want to evangelize. Well, I'm going to get some, some people, we're going to go out and see if we can figure out how to do that. But get on a team, find a way to team up, and just try this. Try hearing God as a team. It doesn't always have to just be you. Uh, and it's way freer, way more fun. Rachel and I do this in just silly, uh, you know, whatever ways. We, uh, whenever we have a guest speaker, we take up an offering. Uh, you know, maybe Jay Threadgill's coming to speak. So we'll go, uh, hey, Jay's coming Sunday. Uh, why don't you pray about what we're supposed to give, and I'll pray about what we're supposed to give. And we just do it for fun. Now, I will tell you this. Probably 60, 65% of the time we get the same number. Isn't that wild? And it's just fun. And when we don't get the same number, we don't stress over it. We just pick a number. Because it's our money. We can do whatever we want with it. But it's more fun if we can be led by the Spirit with it. Right? And seriously, we have a pretty high ratio on this. It's a lot of fun when we both get the same number. So just practice. Just try it. Try team hearing. Try getting confirmation. God does things with confirmation, right? And so it's a good way to do it. And so that's your homework. Uh, find a team. If you're married to someone, you're on that team anyway. <laughs> you might as well be listening to God. See if it works. Amen? Amen?